Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So we're in a sermon series called Greater Things, and we've been talking about what are the bigger and kind of the greater things that God calls us to as his followers, what's our greater purpose as the church. And we're talking about these kind of these bigger things through this series and leading up to next week, which is our Vision Sunday. Now, if you're here and you're kind of maybe unsure about Jesus, maybe someone invited you to come with them and you're kind of like, I don't know what I think about this whole Christianity, about following Jesus. Maybe you're on the fence. Well, I want to say I'm really glad you're here because this is the best place for you to be today. Because sometimes when we come to church, uh, you know, we put on this evaluation mindset and we think, you know, did I like the music? Did I like the person speaking? Did they say things that mattered? And we come up with our own criteria of how we evaluate a church. But what we're going to talk about today is actually the one thing that matters the most when we evaluate a church. We're going to talk about the one thing that when we actually say, are we as a church accomplishing what Jesus has called us to be, that is the measure of what we should evaluate a church by. When we talk about what does it mean for us to be a community of faith that follows after Jesus, that wants to lead people deeper into a relationship with him, this is what matters. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before that, let me give you just a quick recap of last week. Last week, we started this series talking about how do we find a greater love. And we talked about this whole idea that God loves you more than you will ever understand. And the whole reason why Jesus came was to make a new way for everyone to have a relationship with God. That this is the heartbeat of why Jesus came, why God saw fit to put on flesh to come into the world himself was to show that he loves us and to make this way possible. See, Jesus' message changed the course of human history. And in fact, all throughout known history, we can go back as far as we possibly can, no one has ever shaped the history of the world the way that Jesus has. No one has had the influence or the impact that 2,000 years later, We have millions of people around the world who still talk about Jesus on a weekly and daily basis. No other figure from anywhere in history has that level of impact. In fact, there are no uh, reputable historians who will say that Jesus Christ did not exist because the evidence is so overwhelming that he existed, that he came, that he was active. Now, one of the things I find most impressive about this when we think about who Jesus was, was the fact that he was only active for three years. For the first 30 years of his life, he grew up just a normal Jewish boy. He grew up, he was apprenticed to his father. Scripture tells us he was a craftsman, which sometimes we think means carpenter, but probably it meant a little more like a stonemason, like a general builder. You know, he worked with his hands for 30 years. See, that's not the beginnings of what you think the most revolutionary, most pivotal person in all of history would have, but that's how Jesus started. He worked with his hands, led a normal, quiet life for 30 years, and then something happened. Jesus came, and he was baptized by John the Baptist. He began to travel and teach about this new understanding of God and God's relationship with his people. You know, something changed at his baptism. And Jesus began this ministry and he began to travel and teach and talk about God in this, in this amazing way of being in a relationship with him. And this wasn't unusual 
You know, Jesus was, we would, you know, we would look back at the time period and say, you know, Jesus was a rabbi, and that was often the term that was given to him. And a rabbi was just someone who taught the Israelite scriptures, who taught their law that was given to Moses, you know, thousands of years earlier. But what's different about Jesus is he would have been called an unlettered rabbi. And what that means is he didn't have a pedigree. He wasn't taught by another rabbi. He wasn't, didn't grow up in a rabbi's school. He didn't have that basis because he didn't need it. Because he was God himself, stepped into humanity, filled with the Holy Spirit, and was traveling and speaking. And so the, because of that, the way Jesus talked about their law and their history and their scriptures was totally revolutionary. And in fact, after early on in his ministry, there's this, this time that we call the Sermon on the Mount, and he gives this big, long message to the crowds that are following him. And at the end of the message, it says this in Matthew 7. It says, The crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. See, Jesus was separate from the rest of the rabbis of the day because he taught with an authority that no one else could match. He spoke in ways that none of them could, could you know, be equal to because he was Jesus and because something happened and changed. And so through Jesus' three years of his ministry, he was traveling and speaking and great crowds were following him and there was this word that started coming up and going around him often. And this word is Messiah. Now the Messiah goes back to their Israelite scriptures, goes back to their old, what we call the Old Testament now. And the Messiah was this anointed one, this promised deliverer that God would send to restore Israel, to restore his people. And there was all these different schools of thoughts of who the Messiah would be. Some people thought that the Messiah would come and would be a warrior because Israel is under Roman rule at this point. They thought that the Messiah would come and be a warrior. They'd raise an army and they would drive Rome out with a sword and set up Israel to be its own independent nation again. Some people thought that he would come as a king, that he would again overthrow Rome, but not by the sword, but through political means, through becoming the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judea, the king of Israel, that area. And still others thought that, no, when the Messiah comes, it'll be about reforming things. The Messiah will come and be a priest that will, you know, restore the temple to the glory that it once had when it was first built. And lastly, there was this other group that just thought the Messiah would be a provider, and they were following Jesus because of the miracles and the healings and the things that he gave the people. And so there's all these thoughts around what this Messiah will be. And so one of these times, Jesus is with his disciples, this group of 12 that were kind of his close companions that saw everything he did firsthand. And Jesus asks his disciples, he asks them this question in Matthew 16, he says, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now, son of man was a title that Jesus used for himself. And well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now, I just want to clear something up. They're not talking about reincarnation here. They're not saying that Jesus is literally John the Baptist come back because at this point, you know, John the Baptist was, and Jesus were alive at the same time. They're not saying he's, you know, Elijah come back. See, and, and I'm not really a sports guy. I'm not really a hockey fan. And I know I'm Canadian. That's, you know, a bit of a problem, but bear with me. Anyone who's older than me knows this name. And actually, people younger than me should probably know this name, Wayne Gretzky. You know, what was his nickname when he stepped on the ice? He was a hockey player that was shorter than most. He was lighter than most. He was the weakest member of every hockey team he was ever on. 
But there was something different about Wayne. He read the game and he saw hockey played in a way that no one else could comprehend. And he would do things that no one expected. And they called him the Great One. And all through his career, his nickname was the Great One. And he always stood out. He always rose to the top of every team he was part of. Now, since his retirement, there have been a number of hockey players that have been given a nickname. Do you know what that nickname is? The Next One. You know, Sidney Crosby had that nickname when he started and joined into the NHL. And, and Google tells me today that that nickname has changed to a guy named Connor McDavid. I don't know who he is, but maybe you do. See, they're not a reincarnation of Wayne Gretzky, but they're saying they play in the way that Wayne Gretzky played. So when Jesus' disciples say to him, you know, the people think you're John the Baptist, the people think you're Elijah, the people think you're Jeremiah, what they're actually saying is you are a new iteration of these heroes of faith from old. This is something new. This is an awakening happening. This is something good. You are like them, but you're not actually them. This isn't reincarnation. But then Jesus says, you know, you've told me what the people think. And he says to his disciples, but who do you say I am? And so Simon Peter, one of the disciples, says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. See, Peter makes this declaration that he is the Messiah. He is this anointed one. He is this promised deliverer that has come into the world. And so Jesus replies to Peter, and he says this, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. He says, you've received wisdom from God about this. You understand it. And he goes on, he says, now I will say to you, he renames him, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. See, upon this rock, I will build my church. That is a promise that Jesus gives to Peter. And this is actually the first instance of the word church anywhere in the gospels. This is the first mention of church in scripture. So what is church? And in fact, Jesus you know, this is a word that feels normal to us now. Sometimes we think, well, it's, you know, that, that church on the hill, we think it's a building. Or we think, you know, I'm going to church today. We think it's a, you know, a gathering, a place we come to. Or sometimes we get to this point where we actually recognize, no, church means the people. But when Jesus said this, he actually invented a new word. He actually took two Greek words and put them together to say ekklesia. And when these two words are put together, what it means is the word church in Greek means the gathering that is called out. So it's not just the gathering, it's not just the people, but there's this qualifier, the gathering that is called out. Well, called out to what? Because when we say to called out, it means there's a purpose. It means there's something bigger that they're being drawn towards. So how do we find what this is? And let's track with Jesus' life for a little bit. Because Jesus kept teaching and he kept speaking and the religious leaders of the time kept getting more and more and more upset and angry with him because he was blowing their whole understanding of their faith and their relationship with God out of the water. He was completely changing everything. But what happened next in his life was completely unexpected by the crowds that were following him. Because when the Passover time came, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and the religious leaders coerce the Roman governor, Pilate, to have Jesus arrested. And they completely violate their own law in how they hold the trial to declare him guilty. There is nothing to declare him guilty. He has not broken a single law of their people. But they coerce Pilate into having Jesus executed. 
And they put Jesus on a cross, and he's killed at the height of the Passover week. And the crowds and the people and the disciples were stunned by this. Even though Jesus had told his disciples privately, he had told these 12, this is going to happen. He had talked to them about that this would happen, that the Son of Man would have to be killed in order to be raised up. And they didn't understand, they didn't comprehend. But sure enough, Jesus, at the hands of Pilate, gets killed. And everyone kind of has this three days of what now? We thought he was the Messiah. Shouldn't he have called together an army? Shouldn't he have taken over the country? Shouldn't he have like overthrown the temple? Shouldn't he have used his power and strength to prevent himself from being killed? All these questions are circulating in the people and they don't know what to do. But here's what really happened. See, when Jesus died, he took upon everything that separates us from God. Every barrier that had ever been between God and humanity, Jesus took those on. And when he was killed, he was the sacrifice for them. And because Jesus is who he is, because he is the Son of God, death could not hold him down. And we sing that line in some of our songs, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. And the veil was this curtain in the temple that separated the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, this symbol of God's presence. The curtain is torn in two, separated. So there is no barrier between God and humanity. And so what happens next is even cooler because Jesus starts appearing to his disciples. They'll be in a place gathered with locked doors in a locked room and suddenly Jesus is standing there with them and he's there in a physical body. They touch him. They, they feel the nail marks in his hands and the wound in his side. He is there physically in a physical body. He eats with them. He dines with them. And he starts to teach them and he starts to reveal to them this is what's going to happen. And at one of these times, he tells his disciples, I want you to go to a mountain in Galilee on a specific time. And so the 11 remaining disciples, they go to Galilee, they go to where Jesus tells them to go. And they meet Jesus there. And this is the very end of Matthew's gospel, of Matthew's recording of everything that Jesus did. And Jesus does this. He comes to his disciples, Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, what he's saying in that is that I have the authority to give you this command. This is a command that comes not from Jesus the man, but Jesus as this perfect union between humanity and divinity. Jesus as God incarnate coming into the world. And so he has the right, he has the power to give this command to his followers. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. Now, a disciple just means someone who follows, someone who's disciplined, someone who learns to pattern their lives over that of a master. And so Jesus says you know, to his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations. This is for everyone. This isn't just for the people who have a tribal ancestry that go back to Abraham, which is what the the people of Judea thought. This is more than just descendants of Abraham. This is all the nations, everyone, everywhere. And then he says, baptize them. And baptism is this symbol that we still practice in the church today of, of it's this kind of entry, right? This mark of declaration of saying, I am choosing to follow Jesus with my life. And when we have a baptism service here, we pull out a tank and we set it up and we baptize people because it's a celebration of this declaration. 
It's a time to celebrate that someone's made this choice to say, I'm choosing to put my trust in Jesus. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is where we understand God as the Trinity, that God is three in one and in this perfect relationship with himself. And it's the overflow of God's love and his relationship with himself that makes him want to have a relationship with us. That's why God created in the very beginning. And it's only after this that the disciples start looking back at their Hebrew scriptures, because that's all the scripture they have at this point. The rest of the New Testament hasn't even been written yet. And they start realizing all these times in their history where it talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they start realizing that from the very beginning, this is how God always has been. But Jesus goes on and he gives them this last bit. He says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. He says, pattern, teach them to pattern their lives after me. Because Jesus is the perfect example of how we can follow God. And then he gives this promise. I am with you always even to the end of the age. It's a promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will never abandon us. He's always with us. That word with is so critical. It's so important. God does not just want things from us. He wants to be with us. But when Jesus gives this command, and we call this passage the Great Commission, the greater mission that God calls us to, he actually gives his followers the mission And he gave them the goal, but he did not give them the method. Remember, he said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, here's a three-step plan. And by the way, every point starts with the same letter because that's what we think a good talk should have. Jesus didn't give a go and do this, and then go and do this, and go and do this. He gave them the goal. He gave them the outcome to look for to make disciples of all the nations. He didn't give them a plan. But Jesus gave a hint. And it's a hint that's so small, sometimes we miss it. But it comes at the beginning and the end of that passage we read. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, this is the first hint of the method of what Jesus is teaching. He says, all authority has been given to me. And so as his followers, a measure of that authority is given to us. A measure of that authority in Jesus' name. Now, it's not authority that we have in ourselves. It's authority that actually comes from a relationship with Jesus. We have the same authority that Jesus has been given as a follower of Jesus. And it comes with this promise. Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. There is no time, there is no place, there is nothing that separates us from us unless we ourselves choose to be separated from God. So how do we find this method? How do we find what Jesus is hinting at? And to to go there, we're going to move to the book of the Bible that talks about what happens after Jesus' ministry. And that's the book of Acts. And so Matthew's gospel ends with this verse. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. End of the story. But it's not the end. Because Acts carries on from about AD 33 to about AD 65, the first 30-ish years of the church. But there's something I I want to expand that for a second. Because... Something fascinating happens. And if you're a student of history, and, and I kind of like history, so you've got to go with me for a moment on this. From A.D. 33, when Jesus dies, to A.D. 313, so just under 300 years, a third of the Roman Empire professes faith in Jesus and is a Christian. A third of the Roman Empire, a third of the known world, 
declares to be a follower of Jesus. And at this point, Christianity is not protected in any way. In fact, declaring that you are a Christian is actually declaring treason against Caesar because you're saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. So the church is persecuted. The church has no protection. The church has no, no authority under the state to exist, but it grows. Why? Because it's bigger than that. It's more important than what was happening at the time. People realized and were recognizing that what these disciples had, what they taught about, what the church had, was something so much bigger than anything else on earth. And so to find this method, we have to look at what did Jesus' followers do in Acts? What did they do during the first 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection? Now, one of these times when Jesus was gathering with his disciples, and this is actually the last time that Jesus was with his disciples after his death and resurrection. It's, we, we call this his ascension when he returns up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus meets with his disciples in Jerusalem, and, he t- and they ask him this question, when are you going to return and set up your kingdom? See, they're still thinking in this like warrior king mindset. They're saying to Jesus, when are you going to come and overthrow Rome and take over the world? Jesus doesn't answer them. He says, you know, it's only up to the Father to know that. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if we look at that closely, there's a method in that. You will receive power. Before, Jesus said, all authority, all power has been granted to me on heaven and earth. Now he says, you will receive power and authority. And you will be my witnesses, meaning you will tell people about me. And Jerusalem is where they are right now. Judea is the country where they normally would go. Now, Samaria, Samaria is actually like the hated enemy of everyone who lived in Judea. It's like, these, those are the people you don't like, the people you purposely go around their country when you have to travel north. And then he says, and on to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to receive power. He gave his followers a mission to change the entire world. And the other thing is he gave them everything they needed to change the world. And so just shortly after this, Jesus tells his disciples, this is the last thing he tells his disciples before he ascends to heaven. And then a short while later, there's a group of them are gathered. And Acts tells us it's only about 120 people. 120 people are gathered in one room, in one place. And what happens is remarkable. Because the Holy Spirit descends on that room, on that gathering of people. The Spirit of God comes and indwells within him. And there is this great, they describe it as there's a great windstorm and something like tongues of fire. We don't even know what it means. Something like tongues of fire came and descended upon them. And there's this great like earthquake-like bass rumbling sound happens. And this happens during one of the festivals where people from all over the world are in Jerusalem. And so Peter comes out and everyone's like, what's going on? Was there an earthquake? What's going on? And Peter, who previous to Jesus' death and resurrection, you know, he always kind of messed things up. He always said the wrong things and he made these crazy declarations that he never fell through on. He proclaimed he would never abandon Jesus and then the moment Jesus arrested, he runs away and denies him three times. Peter, the rock upon which the church will be built, gets up and he preaches to the crowds. 
And something amazing happens, something supernatural happens when Peter preaches. Everyone who's listening hears it in their own language. People from all over the world are there and they hear Peter speaking their own language. And he starts telling them, this is what God has promised all along. And he goes back through their history and says, look, Jesus was the Messiah. This is the evidence. This is the proof. This is what's happening. And that day, 3,000 people commit their lives to Christ. The church in one day goes from 120 people who stuck around to 3,000. And that is the beginning of the church and the beginning of the church having this mission. See, everything we need for the greater mission was given to us when the Holy Spirit arrived. It was given to us 2,000 years ago. It was given to us for us to carry out this greater mission of how do we make disciples of all the nations? How do we teach people to follow Jesus? How do we do this? The how is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Making disciples is the outcome. The how, the method, is that. Now, we don't have the time today to dig into this whole, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit arrived? What is, it, what, what is that power? And so I want to give you a little preview of something that's coming up in two weeks, the Sunday after Vision Sunday. We're going to be launching into a new sermon series here called Giver and Users. And it's all about the Holy Spirit and the way that he gives spiritual gifts to us. And how do we, as his followers, how do we use the spiritual gifts God has given us? Now, maybe you're sitting here and and maybe you have a bit of history with church and you're, you know, this little inner skeptic is going off. That's okay. Then you need to be here because we're going to dive into this. And some of you who know me, you know, we were, maybe you were here in the fall when we did the series called The Problem of God. I like, you know, I'm still an inner skeptic, but I like dealing with the questions it rises because someone who's a skeptic is someone who asks questions. And if you ask questions, usually it means you actually want the answer. And so that's what this series is going to be about coming up next. We're going to dig into what does it really mean for us to be a community of faith, for us to be a church that is empowered and using the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. We're going to dig into that on March 24th, starting then, because, you know, I'd love to just go through it all right now, but, you know, some of us are getting hungry, including me. So here's where we come back to. The greater mission that God gave to the church is not a small mission, And in fact, it's not a mission that's just for Grand Valley and Brandon, Manitoba. This is a mission for every church. So at the beginning, when I said, you know, we all have things that we evaluate a church by, are they living out the greater mission of God to make disciples, to lead people into a relationship with God? That is actually the only criteria of evaluation that matters. Because everything else is personal preference. Everything else is just what I like. But this is the standard that God actually gave to us. Are we actually living out the greater mission? Are we actually making disciples of every nation so that everyone can know God's greater love, the whole reason why Jesus came, and the greater purpose being the mission that he has called us to? Are we actually living these things out? And just like the disciples, we need to start where we already are. When Jesus gave this command to his disciples, he said, where do they start? Jerusalem, the home city that they are in right now. He says, you will start in Jerusalem. Then you go to Judea. Then you go to Samaria. Then you go to the ends of the earth. See, when Jesus was there with his disciples that last time, he promised them the Holy Spirit. He gave them their mission. He gave them their purpose. He gave them why they exist. And then Jesus empowered the church with the Holy Spirit. That is our greater mission. 
That is what we are called to as a community of faith. That's what every single church that professes to follow Jesus is called to do. So there's a question to ask. What actions are we going to take to live out God's greater love for everyone and to carry out the greater mission he's given to us? Because this is where the rubber hits the road. Now that we know that this is the mission God has called us to, what are we going to do about it? That's the question that always comes up. And that's what we're going to dig into next Sunday. And so I want to give you this, this question to kind of think about, you know, what actions are we going to take on our own? But next Sunday, when we're gathered here for our Vision Sunday, we're going to talk specifically about what does this mean for us? What does this mean for Grand Valley Church in Brandon, Manitoba to live out this greater mission? And if you haven't picked up one of these little annual report booklets, we've got them in the lobby for you to grab. And I want to encourage you to read through this because this tells some of the story of, of where we've been and where we're going. And it also has, you know, kind of the, we believe in being transparent and open. So this has our financial reports. This has who's being nominated to serve on our board of elders who, who with me work together to guide and direct and shape our church because we believe in being open and transparent about those things. And so that's all in this. But on the last page... And if you're here last week, I'm going to challenge you to do this again if you haven't. On the last page, there are five prayer focuses. And I want to ask you to this week to sit down with this and pray through these five things and and write it out. You know, one of the practices for me that's been shaping my walk with God has been that I've been focusing more on writing out and journaling when I'm praying. I don't write full sentences, just point forms, okay. But focus on what does it actually mean for us to live this out? And so that's next Sunday. We've got two services happening. The first at 11 is going to be part three of this Greater Things series. And then at 6.30 is going to be our part four, the continuation of it. What does it mean? Where do we go from here? And so I want to challenge you to do that. What actions are we going to take to live out God's greater love? And what actions are we going to take to live out God's greater mission that he has called us to? Let me pray for us together. God, you saw fit to come into the world, to make a path open into a deeper relationship with you that you call us to. And Lord, we thank you that you saw fit to do that, that you love each one of us dearly. You knew us before we were made, before we were formed, and you call us deeper to know you. And Lord, we know that you love people who do not know your love for them yet. And God, I pray that as a church, as a community of faith, we would wrestle with these questions. We would wrestle with our mission. We'd wrestle with our purpose. We'd wrestle with our meaning so that we can, so that we can be your partners, that we get to walk alongside you and live out your mission in this world. Lord, there's so much deeper meaning that we find when we walk with you. And Lord, I pray for our church that we would each find that deeper meaning, that deeper mission, and we would personalize it for ourselves that you would reveal to each one of us the specific role that we have to play, the specific task that you have for us that will impact and continue to shape the world. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Folks, thank you for being here. And again, I hope to see you all next Sunday, 11 o'clock and 6.30. We have Kids Zone running for the kids in the morning, and we have a full-hour kids program happening at the evening service. So you don't even need to find a sitter. Folks, have a great week. See you next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.